I'm Richard Paulsford, stand-up comedian and rather unprofessional historian. In this show, recorded for the It Just So Happened podcast, we will explore some of the historical people associated with and events which happened on this very day in history, which is the 20th of August. That's before we delve into some of the history of the city where today's show is taking place, which is the capital of Scotland, Edinburgh. Hey. All very muted. <laughs> you can tell we're into week three. We're performing as a show in the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, the world's largest arts festival. Our venue today is the same as the past two shows, the historic Beehive Inn in the Grassmarket, located below the rock on which Edinburgh Castle stands, and the hub for the Scottish Comedy Festival, which seeks to promote some of the finest Scottish-based comedians at the Edinburgh Fringe, and now in its eighth year. We have an international panel, however, today for uh, this show, with acts performing their own shows here in the city at the Fringe. So we appear to have one of our panellists who's gone AWOL, but the ones that are here today include Gerard Harris, Radu Isaac, and Lee Moore. So without further ado, our first guest tonight is Gerard Harris, who has actually already done two shows with the It Just So Happened podcast. He performed with us at the Ludlow Fringe in June and at the Buxton Fringe in July, so I think for anyone who listens to the podcast, you would have no need of an introduction, but I'll, if you want to say something about yourself, you're welcome to. Third time, so I'm o- lucky. Over to Gerard, thank you. Uh, hello, thank you very much. Um, uh, and in, uh, in contrast to the previous two podcasts, which I prepared for thoroughly, um, this one, uh, I, 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 as I just told Richard, I was busy getting married in the desert in Las Vegas five days ago, uh, and then on a honeymoon in New York. I'm really not uh, ready for this. Uh, um, uh, so not that I was ready for marriage either, but um, I've chosen, uh, do you know, plenty of things happened on the 20th of August, as Richard I know will fill us in in, in between, uh, but, and I chose um, the uh, assassination of Leon Trotsky on the 20th of August 1940, which I think uh, we're all good Stalinists here, aren't we? Uh, it was a wonderful day in Soviet history. So, here we go. Um, I'll just to fill you in. Trotsky and his wife Natalia had been exiled from the Soviet Union in 1929 by Stalin, and they initially moved to Turkey. Uh, because part of the deal with the regime in Turkey was that Stalin promised not to assassinate him on Turkish soil. Uh, Then, uh, after trying uh, to live in France and Norway, both of which treated him very shabbily, they ended up in 1939 living in Mexico City at La Casa Azul, the Blue House, uh, which was home of Mexico's most famous painter, Diego Rivera, and his now more celebrated wife, Frida Kahlo, uh, with whom Trotsky immediately started an affair. Uh, And they stayed uh, living with him for two years, uh, during which time he also survived his first assassination attempt from the NKVD, which is the precursor to the KGB. Uh, then in 1939, he and Diego Rivera fell out, fell out, though not apparently about fucking his wife or attracting hired killers to the house, just some other domestic stuff. Um, and so they moved a few blocks away, still safely within fucking distance and indeed killing distance to a place of their own. In early 1940, Trotsky was suffering from high blood pressure, and feared that he would suffer a cerebral hemorrhage, which in a very special way turned out to be true. (laughs) Um, He wrote a document known as Trotsky's Testament, in which he expressed his final thoughts and feelings for posterity. I shall die a proletarian revolutionist. I shall die, that first bit was already good. Um, I shall die a proletarian revolutionist, a Marxist, a dialectical materialist, and consequently an irreconcilable atheist. And then a few months later, in May 1940, there was an attack on his new house led by 
an NKVD agent, Josef Grigulevich, and Mexico's second most famous painter, David David Alfaro Siqueiros. You've got to wonder if he really was a Stalinist or if he was just a typical envious artist who felt snubbed that Trotsky chose to live with Rivera and fuck Rivera's wife. Uh, the attacking party was composed of men who had served under Siqueiros in the Spanish Civil War and of miners from his union. After thoroughly raking the house with machine gun fire and explosives, the attackers withdrew in the belief that nobody could have survived the assault. They were mistaken. Uh, Trotsky's 14-year-old grandson, Esteban, was shot in the foot. A nice irony, I think, for a failed assassination attempt. Uh, and then a month later, Trotsky wrote an article titled Stalin Seeks My Death uh, uh, on June 19, in June 1940, in which he stated another assassination attempt was certain. And thus, on June, on the 20th of August, 1940, Trotsky was visited in his study by a young Spanish communist who had befriended him a, a few months earlier. His name was Ramon Mercader. I don't know how it's pronounced, sorry. And his plan was simple. Show Trotsky a doc document, and as soon as he buried his face in his papers, Trotsky had bad eyesight, uh, then he would bury an ice pick into the back of his head. Mercader later testified at his trial, I laid my raincoat on the table in such a way as to be able to remove the ice pick which was in the pocket. I decided not to miss the wonderful opportunity that presented itself. The moment Trotsky began reading the article, he gave me my chance. I took out the ice axe from the raincoat, gripped it in my hand, and with my eyes closed, with my eyes closed, um, <laughs> dealt him a terrible blow on the head. However, the blow to his head was bungled, possibly because he kept his eyes fucking closed, um, uh, and failed to, to kill Trotsky instantly. Witnesses stated, sorry, how were there witnesses? I have already stated <laughs> they were alone in this city. Witnesses stated, there's a conspiracy here, I was a bit late to bring it up now, uh, that Trotsky spat on Mercader. You know you're in trouble when you're a 27-year-old man who's just buried a nice pick into the back of a 60-year-old man's head, and instead of falling to the floor and dying, he turns around and in your face. Fucking hell. Balls on the man. They began struggling fiercely, and Trotsky broke Mercada's hand. Good for him. Uh, hearing the commotion, his bodyguards burst into the room and nearly killed Mercada, but Trotsky stopped them, saying that he should be made to answer questions. Um, Trotsky, why did you close your eyes? That's the first question. <laughs> Trotsky was then taken to a hospital, operated on, but died at the age of 60 on the 21st of August 1940. According to one source, Trotsky's last words were, I will not survive this attack. <laughs> and Stalin has finally accomplished the task he attempted unsuccessfully before. Ramon Mercader served 20 years and then went to the Soviet Union to collect a peace prize. <laughs> he died in Havana in 1978 of lung cancer. So bourgeois. Uh, he, is then he was buried under the name Ramon Ivanovich Lopez. Uh, in Moscow's Kuntsevo Cemetery, rather appropriately named. Um, I say Kuntsevo, it's, it's written K-U-N-T. Uh, and his last words were said to have been, I hear it always. I hear the scream. I know he's waiting for me on the other side. <laughs> That's it. Thank you. I don't have any stories from his afterlife. That's the whole story. <laughs> Thank you, Jared. I was hoping you were going to refer to the Strangler song, but anyway, <laughs> that's for another day, I guess. So it's the 20th of August 1911 when the first commercial telegram was sent around the world. It was sent from the office of the New York Times and travelled via 16 operators in locations including San Francisco, the Philippines, Hong Kong, Saigon, Singapore, Bombay, Malta, Lisbon and the Azores. It took 16 and a half minutes and it carried the very important message. This message sent around the world. <laughs> 
it was the opening of the Pacific Cable in 1900 which enabled the relatively quick around-the-world communication. Now, it may not sound quick, but I calculate that it travelled at 28,000 miles in 16 and a half minutes, making an average speed of over 100,000 miles an hour. Now, exactly 66 years after that, on 20th of August 1977, NASA launched the unmanned Voyager 2 spacecraft from Cape Canaveral in Florida, confusingly the first of two Voyager craft to be launched that year. Now, Voyager 2 was sent to fly by the outer planets Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune, which it did successfully, taking 12 years to do so. It provided a wealth of new information, including close-up photographs of the structure of Saturn's rings, the evidence of active geysers and volcanoes on some of the planet's moons. There was nothing to stop the Voyager spacecraft continuing to shoot away from the Earth at immense speeds. So, as of about six months ago, Voyager 2 was travelling at a velocity of more than 15 kilometres a second relative to the Sun, and it was 120 astronomical units away, so that's 120 times the distance uh, the Earth is from the Sun. This means that light, or more importantly radio wave communication signals, actually take 16 hours to reach Earth from the craft. The spacecraft officially entered interstellar space on the 5th of November 2018, the second artificial object to do so. Both Voyager spacecraft are expected to continue sending data until at least next year, but eventually their plutonium-based power sources will run out, and after that they'll continue on into space until they collide with an object or are intercepted by aliens. <laughs> with this in mind, both Voyager spacecraft carried information about Earth in case any alien beings were to find either of them. So the information included greetings in 60 languages, as well as scientific information about Earth and the human race, along with classical jazz and rock and roll music from the 70s. Uh, uh, nature sounds like thunder and surf, and recorded messages from the president, that's Jimmy Carter, and other world leaders at the time. So as the spacecraft was 1970s technology, the information was all recorded on a 12-inch phonograph record. Along with instructions on how to play it, there was a cartridge and a needle provided. That's all, all they thought ahead, didn't they? So we may have to wait a while for any aliens to find the information, never mind figure out how to download it and then contact us. But the record was sealed inside an aluminium jacket designed to keep it intact for one billion years. Uh, so scientists were optimistic about the timescales involved. So now over to our second guest, which is Radu Isaac. Radu's been a professional comedian in Romania ever since he was old enough to quit college. For nine years, he was known as Romania's Comedian's Comedian. In 2015, he moved to London, and in 2017, made it to the final of the English Comedian of the Year competition, as he has made the transition into English-speaking comedy. His work has appeared on Comedy Central, BBC World Service, BBC Radio 4, and the BBC World Service. Chortle has described Radu as simultaneously sweet and dark, and beyond the joke, has said he's certainly impressive. So there we go, over to you, thank you. Uh, yeah, well, beyond the joke, that, that's the only quote I could pull from that, uh, from that, uh, no, it works, uh, I, I, I don't think it, I don't remember if it said not certainly impressive before that, uh, but I remember it wasn't a good review. Uh, I'm kind of stalling now because, uh, as, uh, I think I'm, I, I, I kind of quit college because I generally don't really enjoy, uh, studying or sort of reading up about stuff. So I chose, uh, I kind of looked on Wikipedia and I, uh, I out of everything I saw that, that happened on the 20th of, uh, 20th of August, I chose something I already knew stuff about, uh, so I didn't really have to read about. Uh, it's, uh, so apparently on the 20th, 20th of August, 
Charles, Charles Darwin published the, the theory of uh, evolution. Yes, in like 18 something. <laughs> so, Look it up yourselves, is that what you're saying? Yeah, well the information is out there. <laughs> also you don't remember if don't just remember numbers. If if you know like more stuff here, but then it does it's just a number. Eighteen I'm gonna say eighteen fifty eight. But it, it might be very wrong. Uh, and uh, that's like one of the things. He published it. I, I did watch like a couple of YouTube documentaries, so I do know some facts about it. It's uh, information on YouTube is as real as information on any, anywhere else. I'm not, I don't have the power to check it. I just believe what I read. It's sort of like believing what it says in the Bible. It's still, it's still words written somewhere. I, I, I'm not good at, with the pens and burner. I can't really check information that's put out there. I can choose to believe it or not. Uh, so yeah, so apparently he, he, he published it with, uh, with like a dude, Arthur something, uh, but then uh, no, nobody knows. Do you guys know the Arthur guy? Everybody just knows uh, Charles Russell, Darwin. Alfred Russell Wallace. Arthur, yeah, Alfred Russell yeah. Wallace. That, sounds like, that sounds like the correct name. <laughs> that must be true. That must be true, yeah. But uh, yeah, I feel like most people don't know. Most people just know about the theory of Darwin. Uh, most people don't really know about Arthur which I think speaks a lot about the theory of evolution. If Arthur wasn't good enough to get his name out there, then it, uh, it doesn't deserve to be out there. It's like species die all the time, names die all the time, his name died, his work isn't important, his life wasn't important, because that's what the theory of evolution is, right? We kind of we just push through, uh, forward through, through the universe, uh, and uh, some of us make it, some of us uh, don't. Uh, I think it was an important book, The Theory of Evolution, because uh, it, uh, I, I kind of have a lot of opinions about it. I don't really know a lot of facts. But before that, so we've always kind of, we've always uh, thought, uh, some people always thought that they're better than other people, but now they have the book uh, to base their theory on. So like, I, I think there have been like a lot of genocides in history, all throughout history, but after the theory of evolution came through, they kind of had the scientific no, 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 we're doing something in the name of science here. Uh, now, of course, the world has changed a bit. So now it's, uh, it's not really survival of the strongest. It's, it's not really survival of the fittest. I think that's a misquotation. It's uh, survival of whoever is more fit, the environment, uh, fit for the environment. So it's not really, if you put a lion in the, in the ocean, it's not, it's not going gonna, it's, it's gonna to eat the dolphin. It's, you still need to match the you still need to match the environment. So I think if we work on changing the environment, if we work on helping uh, the more unfit amongst us, it will it would uh, uh, we would go to a better place. And then hopefully the uh, unfit amongst us, when they, when they get all the power, uh, they'll have the wisdom to help the fit among us. Uh, so they won't let us be homeless. <laughs> Uh, because they're very fit. Okay, so basically, but I do the, the facts that I know, uh, shall I do the facts? As a, uh, apparently Charles Darwin was like a bad guy, he wasn't a good student, but he, uh, his family had a lot of money, so he kind of, they sent him on a voyage around the world, because yeah, uh, again, it's not the, about who's the fittest, it's about who's more uh, fit for the environment, so yeah, he had a, a, a lot of money in his pockets. And that felt made him very fit for the environment of society. 
So he got to go around the world for a couple of years, and he knows this different species, and how the sort of, uh, I think in the Galapagos Islands or something like that, yeah, in the Galapagos Islands. I'll let you know uh, more about me, uh, and I was supposed to prepare. <laughs> <laughs> but it, was, it did happen in the Galapagos Islands. And there are apparently a lot of different species of, uh, of birds there, and they differ a lot just from like islands, from an island to an island, and then kind of figure out, well, they evolved, and uh, then evolution kind of became a word that everybody is using now, and uh, we're starting. For, for, for a while, it's sort of they kind of went head to head with like, they kind of went uh, parallel with religion, because everybody kind of bought the theory of evolution from, it was like a very popular book. It's kind of key. It was, I think, the most popular science, science book in the world. Now all science books are published all the time, but nobody really reads them. People just kind of go, well, let's listen to Elon Musk. There are no other scientists out there. And science, science books are kind of, you need to know a lot of uh, 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 things to understand them, so nobody really reads them. But that book was kind of, was like science for dummies. So it, it kind of, it was one of those like mainstream books. Uh, and it was, everybody kind of believed it uh, 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 instantly. And for a while nobody uh, questioned if, uh, okay, well if the evolution is a thing, then God isn't a thing. They kind of believed both things at the same time. And apparently in the last couple of years, we're, uh, uh, we're starting to question uh, God because uh, uh, um, because uh, it can't, they can't both be true, uh, which uh, is uh, interesting, but then there might be other facts out there that uh, not only I don't know, but humanity doesn't know either. So it's good to, to follow them, but not too closely, in my opinion, because uh, always another information can come out to, uh, to disprove everything you've worked for your whole life. <laughs> Uh, I think that's all I prepared. Is that okay? Roger Eisen, thank you. I thought about it. I prepared my thinking about it. The thing I find amusing is religious people say that evolution can't be true. I mean, there's no way we could be descended from apes, and yet they call themselves primates in the church. So, uh, but if you don't understand the reference, then. Actually, have you heard of primates in the church? Oh, no, I don't understand the reference. Uh, no, no, but, no, yeah, it's fine. Yeah. The joke's gone now. Okay. So. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so it's the 20th of August 1897 when British doctor Sir Ronald Ross heard of him. He discovered that female mosquitoes transmit malaria between humans. So World Mosquito Day is now observed annually on 20th of August at the request of Dr. Ross himself. So the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine holds events such as parties and exhibitions on this very day every year. And that's what we're missing out on by being at the Edinburgh Fringe. So it's something worth celebrating. Throughout the course of human history, it's reckoned that 108 billion people have lived. And it's estimated that 52 billion of them have died from malaria. So very nearly half of everyone who's ever lived. This makes the mosquito the leading cause of human deaths. And only in the last 120 years have we started to get a proper understanding of the disease, it seems. So malaria, the word itself, comes from the Latin malaria, meaning bad air, and it was associated with foul air in swamps. In the second century AD, if I can say this correctly, Serenus Salmonicus, physician to the Roman Emperor Caracalla, prescribed in chapter 51 of his book Liber Medicinalis that malaria sufferers wear an amulet, and this amulet should contain what turns out to now have been the first mention of the word abracadabra with the word written in the form of a triangle. 
A 16th century treatment for malaria was to throw the patient into a bush, hoping he'd get out fast enough to leave the fever behind. And in the 17th century, malaria was quite common in Western Europe. So Oliver Cromwell is an example of someone who died of malaria in September 1658, or at least from complications following the attack of the tertian ague, which was a form of the disease. The area around Sochi in Russia used to be a malaria hotspot, but the Gambusia affinis fish was introduced into the Black Sea coast in the early 20th century, and it eats malaria mosquito larvae, and within 30 years, there were no longer any cases of the disease. So, just remains me to say, happy world mosquito. <laughs> and over to our third guest, Lee Moore. Lee tells me he's an experienced storyteller, stand-up and spoken word performer from Sheffield. He first performed back in 2011, uh, and is co-hosting a true storytelling show at the Edinburgh Fringe called Tales of Whatever, a show which I'll be guesting on later this week. His favourite historical site is Vindolando, which is on Hadrian's Wall, and following a history of theology module in his degree 20 years ago, tells me that he's a little obsessed with the fate of Polycarp, Bishop of Smyrna, in 155 AD. Do you need this mic? Yeah. Yes. Oh. Uh, over to Lee. Yeah. Hello. Thank you. Um, I uh, have prepared, but what I will say is, is what I have prepared has been described when I've tried it out as willfully odd. Um, but historical and informative. So uh, maybe I'll talk about uh, Polycarp Bishop of Smyrna in a bit, because he is a legend. Um, so when I was uh, preparing this, I, I went to uh, onthisday.com, a notable historical website, and it sort of breaks down everything that happened every day um, on that day. And I started having a look through to go, oh, well, you know, I'll use this as inspiration to try and find um, sort of what I want to talk about. I was struggling a little bit. I was um, trying to write stand-up, and genuinely, at one point, I considered doing something uh, the historical stand-up using the uh, sort of rhythm and meter of uh, uh, Peter Kay's garlic bread bit, which was I was just ashamed of myself <laughs> afterwards. But as I was going through, I noticed something odd about the period 1912 to 1995 on 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 there. There, there seemed to be an awful lot of facts about one particular thing. And it seemed odd to me. You know, so I, I literally copied down everything from the website that sort of happened between 1912 and 1995, counted them up and broke them down into percentages to try and see if what I thought was right. So just as a little thing, going through those, 0.83% uh, of the facts were about Frisbees, 9.6% uh, was about technology and science, 14% uh, about war, 14% about politics, you'd expect that. The thing that there was the most about, 20% was baseball. <laughs> yeah, weird, right? It's a weird thing. So I started, I cut, clipped out all the baseball facts. I mean, I have too much time on my hands. <laughs> clipped all the facts out and started reading them. And I mean, I don't want to overstate it, but I think I may have found the answer to life, the universe, and everything. <laughs> Yeah, you know, like the, those codes that people find in books, like the Bible code and, and things like that. I think we're onto something here. So, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read those facts to you. Um, doesn't matter if you don't understand anything about baseball. It'll, you know, I think you'll start to see. You may well start to see the pattern as we go. And uh, to help you, I've got some lovely music. Yeah, there we go. 1912, Washington Senator Carl Cushion, no hit Cleveland Indians, two for nothing in six innings. 
1950, the White Sox obtained shoeless Joe Jackson from Cleveland in exchange for three men and $31,000. Wichita outfielder Joe Will Hoyt fails to get a hit, ending a 69-game streak. 155 hits in 299 at bats for a .505 average. Uh, feel free to close your eyes. If, uh, <laughs> uh, 1938, Lou Gehrig hits a record 23rd and last Grand Slam. 1957, Chicago White Sox, Bob Keegan, no hits, Washington Senators, 6 to 0. 1958, Cubs use first baseman Dale Long as their first major league lefty catcher since 1906. 1964, Yankee Phil Lintz plays harmonica on the bus despite Yogi Berra's orders. <laughs> <laughs> Yogi Berra's an actual baseball player. That's, that's who Yogi Berra's named after, bizarrely. 1965, Eddie Matthews and Hank Aaron uh, pass Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig's uh, record, hitting 772 home runs while playing together on the same team. 1967, Alvin Dark is fired, rehired, and fired again as manager of the Oakland Athletics. 1974, Brooklyn pitcher Dan Bankhead is the first black man to homer in his first inning at bat. 1980, New York Yankee Bob Watson hits the Seattle Kingdom speaker for the second straight day. Amazing. 1980, Pitts, um, Pittsburgh Omar Moreno steals a record 70 bases for the third consecutive season. 1980, Cleveland's Dan Spillman, 545 ERA, is two outs from a no-hitter when White Sox rookie Leo Sutherland singles. He singles! <laughs> 1985, Dwight Gooden strikes out 16 on the way to his 13th consecutive win. Dwight Gooden again is the first pitcher to strike out 200 in his first two seasons. 1990, Sunday. George Steinbrenner steps down as, as New York Yankees owner. New York Yankee Kevin Mass is the quickest to reach 15 home runs, approximately 132 at bat. Cleveland Indians Jose Mesa sets a record with his 37th consecutive save. You know, just, just take a moment. <laughs> let those facts see that see the patterns just. Donald, or Don King, was born on this day in 1931. King entered the boxing world after convincing Muhammad Ali to box in a charity exhibition for a local hospital in Cleveland with the help of singer Lloyd Price. He has since promoted some of the most prominent names in boxing, including, of course, Muhammad Ali, but also Joe Frazier, George Foreman, Larry Holmes, Mike Tyson, we could go on, as well as promoting the famous fights known as the Rumble in the Jungle and the Thriller in Manila. Some boxers sued him for allegedly defrauding them, but most of the lawsuits were settled out of court. 
meaning he didn't get a grilling from George Foreman. <laughs> so, uh, King has been charged with killing two people. In 1954, King shot a man in the back after spotting him trying to rob one of his gambling houses. This was ruled as justifiable homicide. And in 1967, he stomped one of his employees to death, for which he served three years and 11 months in prison for non-negligent manslaughter. In 1983, he was pardoned by a higher governor, James A. Rose. And here are some of his quotes, showing a remarkable modesty. Number one. There's only been three giant promoters in our lifetime. There's Michael Todd, P.T. Barnum, and yours truly. He also said, I transcend earthly bounds. I never cease to amaze myself because I haven't yet found my limits. I'm quite ready to accept the limits of what I can do, but every time I feel that way, boom. Uh, then he also said, my hair is God's aura. Everything... <laughs> Yes, everything went up when I got home from the penitentiary. One night I went to lie down next to my wife and my hair started popping and uncurling all on its own. Ping, 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 ping. I knew that it was God telling me to stay on the righteous path so he could one day pull me up to be there with him. And then it gets slightly odder. If you cast your bread upon the water and you have faith, you'll get back cash. If you don't have faith, you'll get soggy bread. <laughs> I can't believe that having said what I said was interpreted as having been what I said when I said it, because I said it where I said it, when I said it, and who I said it to. <laughs> and finally, he speaks English, Spanish, and he's bilingual too. <laughs> so the second half of the show is about the history of Edinburgh, and obviously we could talk literally for, well, talk all year, talk about the history of Edinburgh. So we try to narrow it down a little bit to make it easier for the panellists in each show. And for this show I suggested that we um, do a little bit of research ourselves into some of the famous people who have been born and who have lived in Edinburgh. Um, so I'm hoping that that is the case for each of us. Would you like to go first sure, again? Yeah, again. Would, would yeah, you like the mic no then? And then sure. if we want to chip in we can, uh, but you can take Please, the lead on this. Please, by all means. Okay. Yes, okay. So if you thought my first piece was flimsy, strap in. Uh, <laughs> this is, um, uh, uh, of all the very famous people uh, who are associated with Edinburgh, uh, uh, who here doesn't remember um, uh, William Smelly, uh, 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 who was the first editor of the Encyclopedia Britannica, um, uh, Wikipedia of its day, um, which is ind indeed where I got most of these facts from. Uh, uh, so, um, William Sm and I would just like to say, the only reason I chose him is because his name is William Smith. Um, and most of what you're about to hear is entirely based uh, uh, on the notion that you're going to find that funny. <laughs> it isn't. Get a Kindle or something. Uh, so, uh, William Smelly um, was born in the Pleasants. Uh, which makes a change, because that's normally where uh, lots of comedians go and die. Um, in, uh, in 1740, the son of Alexander, yes, Smelly. Um, uh, in 1775, Smelly was nominated for the post of Professor of Natural History at the University of Edinburgh. However, the post was awarded to Dr. John Walker, allegedly due to politics. Oh, I think it was more likely because otherwise he'd have been Professor Smelly of Natural History. Um, beautiful. Uh, incidentally, he's not to be confused with the obstetrician, Dr. William Smelly, the father of British midwifery. Uh, at the age of 28, Smelly was hired by Colin McFarquhar and Andrew Bell to edit the first edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, which appeared in 100 weekly instalments. It was regarded 
as a masterful composition, although by Smelly's own admission, um, uh, should be omission, uh, 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 he, thank you, uh, he stole a lot of it from Voltaire, Benjamin Franklin, Alexander Pope, and Samuel Johnson. Unsurprisingly, the first edition of the Britannica contained gross inaccuracies and fanciful speculations. For example, it states that the excess use of tobacco could cause neurodegeneration. Isn't that true? Uh, but, quote, drying up the brain to a little black lump consisting of mere membranes. Although possessed of wide knowledge, Smelly was not an expert in all matters. For example, his article on woman has but four words, the female of man, uh, which I do love. Uh, he became very close friends with Robert Burns, which meant, of course, that together they were known, yes, as Burns and Smelly. Um, <laughs> it was in Smelly's untidy office in Anchor Close, just off the high street, that the poet corrected his proofs, sitting on a certain stool, which, according to Smelly's son, Alexander Smelly, came to be known as Burns Stool. You've got to think that was probably very smelly. Um, well, stool isn't. Uh, unfortunately, most of the records of the friendship between Burns and Smelly have been destroyed because, according to Smelly's biographer, Robert Kerr, many letters of Burns to Smelly, which, <laughs> which remained, were totally unfit for publication, and several of them contain severe reflections on many respectable people still in life, and they have been burnt. Um, I'll leave you um, uh, with uh, a poem that uh, Burns wrote for Smelly. Um, uh, shrewd Willy Smelly, uh, Willy Smelly, <laughs> uh, who says Burns isn't the best? Shrewd Willy Smelly to Crocallan came, the old cocked hat, the brown surtout, the same, his grisly beard just bristling in its might, t'was four long nights and days to shaving night, his uncombed hoary locks, wild staring thatched, a head for thought profound and clear unmatched, yet though his caustic wit was biting rude, his heart was warm, benevolent and good. My one Scottish word. The end. So apparently there was strong demand for a second edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica. And that was partly because there were some engravings as part of the edition by Andrew Bell. And some were seen as rather prurient because, for example, three pages depicted female pelvises and fetuses in what was known as the midwifery article. <laughs> and uh, King George III himself censored this wow. and said that uh, every single copy should have those three pages ripped out. Yeah, that's what wow. I thought about it. Yeah. For himself. Well, maybe, yes. I, did, I like this idea of um, the tobacco uh, having this neurodegeneration for the yeah. brain to a black lump, which is a bit like what Facebook does to people now, I imagine. Yeah. Also, uh, um, uh, ironic that a man whose name is Smelly uh, got something so wrong about tobacco. <laughs> his grave? Did you see that about his grave? No. I'm so the Burns described Smelly as uh, I can't do, say that without laughing now. Um, he, he described him as that old veteran and genius, wit and bordery, and that's now engraved on oh, the tombstone. Yeah, right. which is in Greyfriars. Do you have any chance to look at Smelly? Um, yeah, well, I've, I've read the, the same fact, the quote, the genius in, in wit and bordery, and it made me a little bit sad, but most of the time when you read that, I mean, it sounds quite boring, it sounds quite dull, like, is it, you know, he just did some lecturing and wrote these books, but actually when you just get like, you get a little glimpse that he was probably a bit of a goer, um, <laughs> and uh, so I just it sort of sort of imagined, and they, they, you, there's a picture of it, the picture of him on um, Wikipedia, when you have a look at that, you definitely look at me and go, yeah, you were a go, mate. <laughs>
Generally, looks ravaged, <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I just imagine sort of him and Burns on like crazy nights out. It just seemed a little bit sad that none of that survives. None of those little, none of those sort of mad stories that give you that real, the, the round picture of the man. So did did uh, did his wife change her surname as would have been to Jean yeah. Smelly? Yeah, I guess. So. I mean, he, he, she really must have loved him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think so. And it's, um, I, ju- I don't, I don't know. If you meet somebody and you go, "What's your name?" and oh, that's my mum's name. I love you. <laughs> Surely that's the point that the woman would get up and go, oh, "I've got to go. I've got to. Go. This is not." You know, and it's just pre-Freud. You know, yes. they didn't know. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, my wife, everybody. Just inform- this is informative. You'll need smelly to means smelly brave. means brave in Russian. Yeah, they're very brave not to shower. So <laughs> does, it, does it mean anything in Romanian? Uh, no. No. Marrying me, marrying me, you are very smelly. <laughs> we just got married. Have you researched anyone in particular, or were you relying on us doing the hard work? <laughs> uh, no, uh, I uh, I did research who uh, who was born in Edinburgh. I thought that was the research part, just opening up and seeing the list of people that were born in Edinburgh and choosing the ones that you already know about. I um, I usually get I, I usually get asked to do uh, uh, to to write jokes about stuff. Very rarely do I get hired as a researcher, <laughs> <laughs> considering I did very poorly in school. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I uh, I uh, uh, I know that Alexander Graham Bell, the dude that invented the telephone, uh, yeah, he was born in Edinburgh apparently. So uh, do you guys know that? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Some people didn't know, but you guys know. Okay, that's nice. Uh, I didn't. I was kind of very proud of uh, of uh, Edinburgh when I found out. I d- I also feel like he was the he was basically the guy that invented the iPhone, right? He was the predecessor. We wouldn't have the iPhone today. We wouldn't have like Facebook. We wouldn't have like social media today if it wasn't for Alexander Graham Bell, right? If you think about it, I know there was the famous words when he kind of said, uh, "Watson, do you hear me?" And I feel like ironically that was the first time ever uh, he didn't actually hear him. He was just, "Oh my God, I hear sound. This cable is fantastic." <laughs> That's one of the first instant in our history when we when we're talking to each other but not actually listening to each other was when the guy said Watson, do you hear me? Uh, so I found that kind of uh, interesting. Also, I think that happened in 1858 if I think about it. One of the two <laughs> happened in 1858, so it might have been the invention of the telephone. And then I I just see this in American movies. I don't know if you guys have it, but you know when like two kids talk talk through like a thing to like two tin cans with a string. Yes. So that was like a better uh, version of Alexander's Grand Bell uh, telephone. We didn't really need the full cable, just a string would have done. But uh, so yeah, Alexander Grand Bell was wrong uh, about both Watson hitting him and uh, about the cable being needed for his invention. But that's how uh, evolution goes. You, you start with the imperfect and get to the perfect eventually. That's what I prepared, I guess. <laughs> so I like the fact that it's called Bell. So we would call it nominative determinism. So you become what your name is in some fashion. So yeah. invented a telephone <laughs> for someone called Bell. Shall we move over to your yeah. chosen topic? Yes. I'll let um, you just talk about this chap. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, I want to talk about Sean Connery. 
because um, I was born, born in Edinburgh in uh, 1938 on Fountain Bridge. Um, and obviously, I, you know, I picked I picked John Connery first out of a, a vague sense of laziness because I know lots about Sean Connery. But then actually, when I started sort of doing some digging into his sort of pre-acting life, it's like there's some absolutely fascinating facts about him, which I, I absolutely want to share share with you because they're amazing. Um, and one is not amazing, but kind of horrifying in, in, in sort of looking back on it now, but we'll get to that. Um, but in, interestingly, as far as I can tell, he's not been here since 2010, when uh, they, uh, there was a plaque up on the house where he was born, uh, which is a little bit sad. Um, a few things about him, so the Sunday Herald named him as the greatest living Scot, and he's been voted uh, Scotland's greatest living treasure, uh, which of course is wrong. Scotland's greatest living treasure is the comedian Limmy, as everybody knows. <laughs> uh, um, but interestingly, that greatest living treasure was um, was a Euro Millions, like a lottery thing, which was very strange. Um, but he, the, here's the slightly horrible fact: is in 1952, he seems to be. I don't know if he's proud of this, but it, it's, sort of, it's certainly a fact that came out. It's been out in the, for a long time. So in, in 1952, he says he lost his virginity to an adult woman in the Auxiliary Territorial Service, so that's the Auxiliary sort of, uh, Army uh, position, sort of here in Edinburgh at the, age of, at the age of 14. And it's sort of, like at the time, in the 60s and 70s, you can obviously see it was a bit of a boy, sort of lads, 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 sort of thing, but actually, it's abuse, <laughs> you know, and it's really horrifying. But if you, if you know, you, you, I'm genuinely surprised he's not at the Edinburgh Fringe, you know, making that that admission at the 40 minute mark of his one hour show. You know? <laughs> so, but genuinely, I was, I was sort of kind of shocked by that, and he's just just casually thrown away in in, in sort of Wikipedia. It's very strange. Um, but his first job, uh, which I like this very much, was a milkman for St Cuthbert's uh, Co-op Society. Uh, but then he had a, a variety of jobs after that. He was a lorry driver, uh, a, a lifeguard, uh, a model, um, good, a coffin polisher, which is amazing. That is not a euphemism for anything. He literally <laughs> polished coffins, um, which I thought was extraordinary. And here's another thing. I didn't know he was a, a competitive bodybuilder as well. And um, uh, so in the 1953 Mr. Universe competition, now this is where there's, people aren't sure exactly what this is. He, he placed third in either the junior class or the tall man class. Looks <laughs> <laughs> like a tall man or junior, which is very, very strange. Uh, apparently he gave it up because he was quite athletic as well, he's quite sporty and he liked to sort of do quite a lot of exercise. So he could never put on the massive bulk that sort of American bodybuilders would put on. So he sort of quit doing that. Um, and then, the sort of, um, <clears throat> while he was doing that, he sort of got an uh, audition for South Pacific in uh, Manchester, I think, and then sort of went on to do that. But the, one of the other things, and this I love this, didn't know this about him, um, he was having a kickabout um, with, uh, against the football team uh, that was being scouted by Matt Busby from uh, Manchester United. Genuinely, he was offered a professional contract by Manchester United. Um, oh, 25 pounds a week. Um, and uh, he, sort of, he said he was, he was really tempted by it, but actually in the end, like, well, you sort of, your career as a footballer is over by 30, I'm only 23, went into acting, so basically seeing if that worked out for him. Um, and this last fact is amazing. So uh, in 1950s in, in Edinburgh, 
Um, he was targeted by a notorious uh, criminal gang at the time, the Valdor gang. Um, quite, uh, quite unpleasant characters by all, all, uh, by all accounts. And he was in a, a billiard hall and they tried to steal his jacket. And he was like, no way, you're not having that, you're not having a jacket. And they sort of sloped off, but when he left the club, six of them followed him. Um, and uh, sort of a bit, a bit down the road, he sort of realised they were following him, turned around, attacked all six of them. Genuinely, at one point, grabbed two of them and smashed their heads together, like it, like it was a cartoon, um, which is extraordinary. I, I mean, amazing. And he, he sort of gained something of a, a reputation as a hard man, and the, 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 the gang sort of kind of respected him after that, which is probably quite lucky, because any other day he might have ended up doing something far more serious. But he's sort of, just sort of extraordinary. I, I didn't, I was thinking with James Bond and all these kind of things, but I never knew that clearly he's tough enough to take on local gangs, you know, he's polished coffins, you know. And it all obviously leads up to the big question, the, the, the big question of our time, which is in uh, 1982's The Highlander, why did Sean Connery play a Spanish man called Ramirez, while uh, a Canadian man called uh, Chris Lambert played a Highlander really, really badly? It's, 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 we'll never know. We'll never know. Yeah, I was intrigued to know that he won this a Sexiest Man Alive in 1989 by People magazine. But I mean, you kind of need to be alive, but he doesn't want to be a sexiest man dead. Doesn't he? he also wants the sexiest man of the century in the 90s, apparently, as well. I heard a story, um, uh, just some chap was sitting with friends in a bar a few years ago, uh, and they were getting drunk and they were sharing little sex stories, oh, I did this, I did that, whatever, and on the table adjacent was Sean Connery. Uh, somewhat annoyed that you know these people were laughing and yabbering away about sex and he was just with his guests but and then they got up to leave and Sean Connery le leaned in to the entire table and just said Petula Clark up the arse 1963 <laughs> and walked out <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's like a pub quiz now, but uh, he won the Best Supporting Actor for the film oh. du, 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 du. The Untouchables, in which year? 87. Oh, sorry, please. you could actually read my screen if you wanted to. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> no, it's, 19, it's 1988. Oh, right. there you go, see. That's the pub quiz part. Uh, probably just time to get in very quickly. Uh, unfortunately, it's not a man, I'm conscious now that we just chose men. Uh, for this, so apologies um, for the rather one-sided sexist approach to the show, as it's turned out. But anyway, uh, this is Sir Arthur Ignatius Conan Doyle. He was born on 22nd of May, 1859, at Piccadilly Place in Edinburgh, uh, which, and then lived in squalid tenement flats in Sheen's Place, uh, also in Edinburgh. His father and mother were of Irish Catholic descent. But he was sent to study in Lancashire, age nine, and then spent a year studying in Austria. And while he was there, that sort of helped him to reject the Catholic faith that he'd been brought up with and became an agnostic at that point. And much later in life, he sort of got into spiritualism and was very taken in by spiritualists. And even though he was friendly with Harry Houdini, who kind of said, look, I'm doing these tricks. They're tricks. He still said, oh no, but you've got special powers. 
you, you've got you, you've got the supernatural, and the Houdini was going, no, no, it's a trick I'm doing. It's not understand. So he seemed to be quite gullible in that sense. So even though he rejected his Catholic faith, uh, became a spiritualist, and that was a large part of his uh, his later life. I thought, um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. The spiritualism thing, I find it fascinating because I, I quite, I like his books. I've read most of the Sherlock Holmes stories. And I love the Professor Challenger stories, which I don't know if you ever read those. But uh, there's one where Professor Challenger goes and they discover a lost world on a plateau in South America where there's dinosaurs and things like that. But one of them, and they go at various adventures, but there's one book where it starts out like a normal, like a normal Professor Challenger story, but then he starts invest investigating spiritualism. And the book uncomfortably, and very quickly uncomfortably, becomes an obvious sort of recruitment drive for spiritualism. It's really weird. It sort of it takes a hard swerve from sort of, you know, the big bluff Professor Challenger coming to solve a problem, and then, hey, spiritualism's real, guys. It's really weird. Yeah. A few things I didn't know about before. He was actually a doctor on a Greenland whaler called The Hope of Peter Head in 1880. And after his graduation from university in 1881, he was ship's surgeon on the SS Mayumba during a voyage to the West African coast. So apparently a lot of his time on ships and, and sailing around the world informed some of his writing and, and his books. He tried being a doctor, setting up medical practices, and this just wasn't successful for him. So the writing became a big part of his life. Obviously, it turns out writing fiction was, was his true love and what he was successful at doing. Interestingly, he was a staunch supporter of compulsory vaccination and wrote several articles advocating the practice and denouncing the views of anti-vaccinators, so actually very scientific uh, in support of that, against this um, idea of spiritualism. He attempted to study opth ophthalmology, if I can say it, in Vienna, uh, but found the German medical terms too difficult to understand, so he opened an office in London but had no patients. Uh, so he was unsuccessful as an eye doctor. Is the short hands well known in Romania as that? Uh, no. It's, uh, we, I think we had the cartoons when we were little. I think I first saw the, the story with Robert Downey Jr. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to think about he, So is, is he like a real person, Sherlock Holmes? No. Okay. But inter interestingly, uh, interestingly, he was killed off okay. by Conan Doyle, who was the author, because it was becoming too much a part of his life. So he killed them off in the books. Okay. And people protested and said, well, you can't kill him off, because we want more. Yeah. So then you had to kind of revive him later on and say, well, we didn't really kill him. It was okay. a bit like um, Dallas, but <laughs> of the 19th century. I think it made like, a small parallel with the, with the English book that made it, it mostly about Romania, the Dracula thing. It's somehow it's kind of stuck. Yeah. <laughs> it's nothing to do with Romania, but it's just a dude from Ireland that lived here and wrote a, a, a book about someone, some character that happened in Romania. And now everybody thinks Transylvania is like this mystical place that doesn't really exist. No, Transylvania exists, Dracula doesn't. <laughs> so uh, apparently Doyle popularized the mystery of the Marie Celeste, which uh, is a very well-known story, but he actually fictionalized elements of it. So a lot of what we think happened to the Marie Celeste didn't, because it was actually Conan Doyle that made it up. So that's something maybe uh, you can look up uh, after the show. Another little fact about him, uh, he'd lived in, it says here, oh I see, Honestly, it says here the seaside resort of Portsmouth, that can't be right, but no, he was in Southsea, a seaside resort, near Portsmouth, and he played football as a goalkeeper for Portsmouth Association Football Club, which is an amateur side. He was also a keen cricketer, so he played 10 first class matches for the MCC, 
and was in an author's 11 alongside J.M. Barry, P.G. Woodhouse, and A.A. Milne, which just sounds amazing as a cricketer. <laughs> he was an occasional bowler, and it only took one first-class wicket as a bowler, but it was of the batsman W.G. Grace. Yeah, no, yeah. So I think that's worth clocking up on your CV. Uh, he was also an amateur boxer and a keen golfer, so a very, very sporty chap, this Kevin Doyle. Uh, anyway, it's 16.58, so unfortunately we're running out of time. I had one little thing at the end, which was, and I've given the sheets of paper out, so that's a fact. This is to celebrate the final on this day. So this was a Scottish poet, William Miller. He died on this day in 1872. Born in Glasgow in 1810, lived in Deniston in Glasgow. Took up wood turning and cabinet making, but ill health prevented him from becoming a surgeon. He wrote poetry and children's rhymes, mainly in the Scots language. What he's most famous for is a little poem called Wee Willy Winky. That made him famous in his lifetime. Unfortunately, in 1871, he developed an ulcer on his leg, which forced him to retire from cabinet making, which was his main job. And he died the following year after that became infected. And he was destitute when he died at age 62, despite the fact that we now have this poem that we can read out, which is very famous. We're all going to practice the Scots tongue because it's got five. It's got, oh, no, it's not the work, is it? It's got five verses, and Devon isn't here. Who wants to read two verses? I think you should, Randy. I do, I bet. Yeah. So we're going to start uh, verse one, I'll do verse two, you can do three and four, and then we'll finish with Lee, and that'll be the end of the show. So thank you. Okay. With, oh, you'll need okay, this, yeah. right. Sorry. I can't even do an English accent half the time. <laughs> <laughs> That's happening. Yeah. Hold tight. Um, wee Willy Winky runs through the tune, upstairs and downstairs in his nicked goon, turling at the window, crying at the lock. Are the wings in their bed for it's now ten o'clock? That wasn't bad, was it? That's not cool. Weird! What the hell did that come from? That's the spirit of Conan Doyle. Are you coming, Ben? The cat's singing grey thrums to the sleeping hen. The dog spilled it on the floor in Disney gear cheap. But here's a walk roof laddie that won her far asleep. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, only thing but, she, but sleep. You rogue glow ring like the moon, rattling in aim airing jug wing airing spoon, rumbling tumbling rune a bone crunk like a cock, scurling uh, like a kimi wat, weaponing sleeping fuck. <laughs> I feel like I now speak three languages. <laughs> uh, okay, and uh, hey, well, uh, Willy Winky. Uh, the wings in the creel wambling off a body's knee like a vera eel, uh, rugging at the cat's lug and revealing a hair crumbs. Uh, hey, Willy Winky, see, there he comes. I'm definitely not trying a Scottish accent to be massively offensive. Weirit is the mither that has a story wean, a wee stumpy stousy that canna rim his lane. That has a battle eye we sleep afore he'll close an e, but kiss spray off his rosy lips gives strength anew to me. Thank you very much, panel. So we have Gerard Harris. This edition will be coming out very late in this year, 2019. Thank you very much for listening and enjoy the rest of your frames. Thank you.
Oh, well, if anyone wants to know about Polycarp Bishop of Smyrna, he was he's my favourite martyr. He was a bishop who was burnt at the stake because he refused to burn incense to the Roman Emperor. And they, he was 86 years old in 155 AD. They burnt him alive. It didn't take, he wasn't dead, so they had to stab him in the heart. Whoa. One tough old man. That is my favourite. I am very weird. <laughs>